0: Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at AmericasTalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from both sides of the debate about the need for a child allowance for parents from the US government. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Scott Winship. He is Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility at the American Enterprise Institute, more at AEI.org. First, we're joined today by Patrick T. Brown. He is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can also follow him on Twitter at PTBRights. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be on. Our conversation today about child allowances and Patrick making the case for a child allowance. As we get into the details of this policy, Patrick, do we have to answer one key question first? Do we have to answer what exactly does the government owe to parents?
1: Yeah, I think that is a fundamental question. And the way I come down is by thinking about it through a little bit of an economic lens. We know that parents bear the cost of having a child individually, but the benefits flow to the rest of society in the form of future taxpayers, future soldiers, future job creators, future entrepreneurs. Uh, those are all things that society has a vested interest in. And, and especially in an era of low fertility rates and low marriage rates, the government has a vested interest in wanting to incentivize people to make sure that that the parents aren't left alone, left hung out to dry when it comes to the cost of diapers and child care and school and uniforms and clothes and all that sort of stuff. So uh, a simple uh, approach to addressing that imbalance is something like a child allowance or a, a plus up child tax credit. that that recognizes that parents bear costs that the childless don't.
0: If a a, a child allowance were enacted, where would we as a society see the benefits?
1: I would say the most tangible effect would just be in our public commitment to the idea that, that childbearing is good, that family is good, that we want to be putting a thumb on the scale in favor of I, the normative model of family life, that is uh, a, a parents coming together and having kids. And again, not just leaving them out to dry and to face the uh, the pressures of the marketplace without any impact. Parents uh, are in the economy as, uh, as individuals, as wage earners, but that money that they take home has to provide for their dependents. So if left uh, unchecked, you basically have a situation in which the childless, uh, you know, and we know childlessness is is on the rise. Those people have an economic advantage just because their wage that they're earning uh, is not spread out among multiple mouths to feed and multiple people to take uh, on trips to grandma's house and that sort of thing. So the, the most substantive Reason why I think conservatives, especially, should favor some sort of child allowance is just because it's a very direct way of of recognizing the cost associated with family life and 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 signifying through our giant fiscal uh, commitments at the federal level that this is something that we see is important to invest in. I wouldn't expect to see a big impact on things like fertility rates, for mm-hmm. example, especially for something like a three or $4,000 child allowance. I don't really think you would see a massive uptick in the number of births in the U.S., uh, but to me, that's that's orthogonal to the dispute, right? I think we need to be investing in parents and, and the kids that are, are already existing and, and helping alleviate some of the pressure that's on parents, rather than being solely focused on the sheer mathematics of the birth rate.
0: We did have an expanded tax credit and some cash payments to parents and families during the COVID crisis. Did you see anything in the data or was there enough evidence to draw any conclusions from the data of what we experienced during that that time?
1: Yeah, yes and no. Um, you know, it was a, a six-month expansion of the child tax credit to every family. And the difference being that right now, and you know, in years previous, the child tax credit is applied on your federal income taxes. So, as uh, everybody like, who files taxes likely knows, if you have kids, you get to take a certain amount off your off your federal taxes. If you don't make enough money to owe that much in taxes, you get a smaller amount back. But if you're uh, a very low income family, about a third of kids actually live in families that don't receive the full value of the child tax credit because their families are making twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, and they're not ma- they don't owe enough in taxes to get uh, a, a large amount back in the form of a child tax credit. So what the Biden administration did was just said, all right, in the in the American Rescue Plan and, and in our po- COVID response, we're going to make everybody eligible for the whole amount. Um, and there were some conservatives who c- were worried that this would lead to a decline in labor force participation. And we didn't really see that. Now, again, this is a six-month period. They thought that it was going to build some sort of groundswell for support, and it never really materialized. And so it expired. And so you can say, well, this wasn't really a long enough time horizon to see the impact on things like labor force participation and and, uh, the ability of low income parents to participate in the labor force. Uh, You know, we can have that debate. But I, I think the bigger question that has traditionally divided conservatives is what do we do about these families who are lower working class, working class families who don't owe enough back in taxes uh, to To receive the full value of the child tax credit. And that's something that's been ongoing debate on the right between you know folks like Senator Marco Rubio, Senator Mitt Romney, Senator Josh Hawley, all have sort of put their two cents on it in on what that plan should look like. And I think that's going to be a major flashpoint as we head into uh, the next congressional session in 2025.
0: Patrick, if we create and expand or create a child allowance, expand the tax credit, can or should other benefit programs shrink? Would we be having any duplication in any way?
1: Well, it depends how you design it. I think there's an argument for that. I think that the initial version of the child benefit that Senator Mitt Romney rolled out in 2021 – Actually, would have paid for it in part by consolidating TANF, which is the sort of the successor the to catch welfare that that is is uh, doesn't serve a lot of families, but still provides some benefits. Um, you know, And you can argue that we should be thinking of pro-family policy as different than welfare policy. That's saying, again, thinking about the costs that parents bear and the, the recognition that especially middle-income families, working-class families have expenses related to, you know, you might need a bigger car, you might need car seats, you might need to move to a, a bigger house, or just, you know, feeding a teenager costs a lot of money. Those expenses can really weigh on the minds of working-class parents. And to me, that's, that's not, necessarily the same thing as targeted welfare spending aimed at getting people out of poverty those are those are different conversations in my opinion so you know i think there there is always room i think especially now in this era of high interest rates and and concern about the federal deficit having a, a discussion about the child tax credit needs to be cognizant of these fiscal realities and is especially important to have it paid for through, uh, you know, finding other provisions in the tax code to to consolidate uh, or, or to reform. But I'm not sure that welfare spending is exactly a one-to-one relationship
0: on that. Patrick T. Brown is with us, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, talking about the cha- uh, case for child allowances in this conversation. There's a concern among opponents of this idea about the incentives, and does it incentivize more people to to not work or to work less since they are receiving these cash payments from the government. Are you concerned about that? Should there be some sort of work requirement attached to any sort of child allowance?
1: And this is something that I've I've shifted on a little bit. I used to be pretty firmly in the in the camp that uh we, we didn't need a work requirement that that most working fam- most uh low income families already had somebody attached to labor force. I've been convinced uh, a little bit, in 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 part by folks like Scott Winship of AI, who have, uh, especially the, the you know low income families, people making ten twenty thousand dollars a year, to have a foot in the labor market. Uh, we saw the impact of welfare reform in the '90s have a huge impact. On low income, especially single moms, and recognizing the importance of work as something that's a, it's sort of a conservative value that that conservatives have always cherished, and so I, I do think, if for no other reason than politically, but but maybe on, on substantive grounds as well, may, ensuring that that parents that households have at least one parent who is connected to the labor force in some way, I think is the right way to go about it. But there's more and less stringent ways of attacking that. Currently, as I mentioned, about one third of kids don't receive the full value, or one third of kids live in families that don't receive the full value of the credit because of their family's income is too low. You can change the income requirement to be something similar to, again, I'll use Mitt Romney's plan from last summer uh, where they said if you work, t- if you earn ten thousand uh, dollars, that if that qualifies you for the full amount of the credit, and that ten thousand dollars is something that ninety-five percent or more of of uh, households with children earn. So it's really recognizing that you know if you're wor- even if you're working a minimum wage job, you're you're paying into the system, you have some skin of the game. and for people who fall below that threshold, you have your benefits scaled down as an encouragement of finding a, a, finding a, a you know again, a part-time job minimum wage job, any way of just finding that connection to work because we know that having uh, an adult in the household with some earned income and, and not just replicating the the failures of of past approaches of welfare policy, but really emphasizing the idea of, of a parent having a foot in the workplace, that is important for, especially for the the poorest kids. And so you can do it in a way that that I think straddles that divide pretty well.
0: Would a child allowance increase the likelihood that family is more involved in in daycare responsibilities, whether that be immediate parents or extended family? Would a child uh, allowance uh, increase the chances of that happening? And is that something that we should be encouraging? I think it definitely expands parents' options.
1: And, you know, I'm... I'm sort of I try to stay pretty ambivalent in terms of what government should be encouraging especially when it comes to things like early childhood right and we know that you know a lot of a lot of moms especially and some dads see those early years as as you know irreplaceable time you have kids and and they're they're young and they're learning about the world and if if a parent wants to stay home I don't think the government should tell them they shouldn't or or if the parent is You know, pursuing their career, I'm not convinced it's the government's role to tell them that they they should actually leave the labor force and stay home. We should be giving parents more options to choose the work-life situation that's best for them. And, and in, in that respect, a child allowance is the most simple way to do that, right? Rather than some sort of large-scale, build-back-better approach to child care, which would have pumped, you know, almost a half trillion dollars into things like center-based child care and, and increased regulations and wage subsidies for formal childcare workers, a cash benefit to families, a child tax credit or a monthly child, uh, child payment, just says parents you're the decision maker. You can choose what's best for your family. And a lot of polling suggests that, especially moms without a college degree, wish they could be spending more time at home with their kids, especially when they're young. And so I do think that a child benefit would allow them to uh, to make that choice. But again, it, it, some parents might use that to pay for child care or other, you know, having a nanny or or just helping pay for grandma's gas money to drive back and forth. That kind of thing is okay too. And, and just giving parents cash is a, a pretty hands-off way of of supporting them in whatever choice they make
0: in a post row environment patrick is a child allowance a a pro-life policy that encourages and assists new parents across the country and is it a policy that should be looked at differently in a post row environment
1: Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I was a proponent of of a, of a much larger child benefit even before Dobbs, but certainly afterwards, I think there's even more of a need to think about ways of of financially supporting parents and and saying to moms, especially who maybe weren't expecting to be pregnant or or, or aren't sure if they you know can afford having uh, another mouth to feed, to say, look, we're here to support you. This is a this is a recognition that you know, you, you've taken on this responsibility of of feeding and clothing and, and growing a human life. And it's, it's, you know, our way of, of standing with you in that time. I really like the proposals that have come out, again, I'll I'll mention Romney's, but others as well, who have said, let's start the child tax credit three or four months before birth. So already pregnant moms are getting some support for those last couple of months of being uh, pregnant and and getting ready the the crib and the stroller and all that kind of stuff, standing with them and and saying, you know, again, this is our commitment to standing with parents and, and being Pro family, pro parent, pro child. Again, there's no more uh, direct way of doing that than just saying here's a recognition that that you know, well, of course, children are priceless. That doesn't mean they are costless, and they there are certain financial burdens that come along with having kids. And as a society, we think it's important for for us to to lift a little bit of that weight off of parents' shoulders.
0: Is there a magic number, Patrick? Is there a target? a uh, target amount that you think would be optimal for helping parents and helping families?
1: As I said before, I think the question of what is financially doable is going to be constrained by our, our sort of broader federal deficit conversations. And so it, some of it's going to be a little bit hemmed in by you know what is on the table and what we can you know in a, in a world in which we're saying let's you know further cap the state and local tax deductions which really favor sort of high cost blue states uh if we can take some of that money and apply it toward a child benefit that goes to all parents regardless of where they live you know i i would love to see something like that in my mind, I love the idea of three hundred dollars a month. That works out to 3600 $3, dollars a year for uh, the amount of a child benefit. You know, I, I don't know if that's totally fiscally possible, but I think it's something along those lines would be meaningful, and and parents would see the money coming in every month, and and understand that they're not alone. That there is a a societal investment to to be. Present with them financially, and and but it's not the end of the story, right? Obviously, I think we should be doing much much more to to build a culture of life and to build a cultural support around parents that goes beyond anything that a, a, a mere check can provide. But it's at least a start, and it's a, it's a it's a investment and in, and in, in a signal of what our priorities are, saying children, you know, <laughs> literally are the future, and and uh, are worthy of our investment, just like a tax credit for a business's research and development would be.
0: Patrick T. Brown. He is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can follow him on Twitter at PTBRights. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom.
1: Scott, it was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Now to hear arguments from the other side of this debate, we talk with Scott Winship. He is Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility at the American Enterprise Institute. That's AEI.org. Scott, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: And I want to begin by asking you about the differentiation between how this can take place. This is specifically a conversation about child allowances, but when you get in in a bigger picture, you can talk about child tax credits that are administered through the IRS. We're talking more about child allowances, perhaps administered through the Social Security Administration. Does your position change? Do you have different thoughts as to if it is a child tax credit for families or a child allowance for families?
2: It does. Um, I, you know, I would sort of make two distinctions that are, I think are really important in in this debate. Um, and the, the first one, uh, which we'll probably spend a fair amount of time talking about, is around the importance of work and, and incentivizing work. Um, and so one feature of the child tax credit uh, that is lacking from a child allowance that is just a flat amount that goes to everyone per, per kid they have uh, is that the child tax credit includes this 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 phase in this ramp up, um, so that as you work more initially, you get a bigger uh, amount, so that encourages work. And if you if you remove that, it, it discourages work. Um, the other dimension that I think is important, you know, you could have a child tax credit structured the way that we do, but give it on a monthly basis, um, which I think is the other feature that uh, a lot of people advocate regarding child allowances. I, I also think that's a bad idea, and 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 mostly that's just because I think. It builds momentum toward a, a vision that's common on the left, where everyone sort of it's normalized that people get monthly support from the federal government. That becomes viewed as as an entitlement. It potentially has all sorts of of negative consequences in terms of uh, you know work ethic and, mm-hmm. and and independence and things like that. And, you know, I think it's a very short step from a monthly child allowance to childless people saying, hey, where's my monthly check? And mm-hmm. then suddenly we've got a universal basic income. So so I think both on both grounds, I would say I'd much prefer the child tax credit that we currently have.
0: So, uh, yes, one of the arguments in favor of something like a child allowance is it supports things conservatives should want to support, meaning Parenthood overall, making it easier for, for, for parents to, to 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 exist, to have children, and and supporting one worker families, perhaps, families in which there is a single uh single provider and a and a mom or a dad can stay home. Perversely, though, is there an argument that it actually promotes single parenthood, promotes no worker families? What do we know about the data on that?
2: Yeah, I think that's the exact fear um, that a lot of conservatives have. So so it's interesting when um, Senator Mitt Romney introduced his uh, child allowance proposal at the beginning of, of 2021, uh, there there were a lot of conservatives who, who supported it. Uh, and those tended to be uh, kind of... Social conservatives, pronatalists, natalists um, you know, people who are thinking about well, there are a bunch of, of families out there who arguably can't have the number of kids they would prefer because they can't afford it, um, or they have the number of kids they'd like, but they'd really like to keep one worker at home um, rather than sending both into the workplace—and and so you can you can tell from Senator Romney's proposal that those are the folks that that he's thinking about, and I think those are. The folks that the the reformacons, um, you know, the reform conservatives from 2015, 2016, those were the folks that they were thinking about, and and from that perspective, a child allowance, you know, may may help out those families. I think that's actually debatable too. But the sort of traditional anti-poverty um, conservatives, our perspective was was sort of neglected, um, and and we come at things. Not really thinking about can middle class families have the number of kids they want or would a more generous child tax credit, you know, encourage more single worker families. We're sort of saying like, wait a second, you know, we've managed to reduce child poverty in the United States by a pretty dramatic amount over the past uh, 25 years um, and we don't want to break a system that's worked. And, and unfortunately, if you, as I said, if you take away this work incentive that um, exists for, for lower income earners in the, the current child tax credit, you really do risk not moving from, you know, two worker families to one worker families, uh, but moving from one worker single parent families to no worker single parent families, um, uh, just because it, it that, that's the direction the incentive's. Point towards. So I think, I think it's a real mistake for conservatives to not worry about both of those issues. Kind of what's happening for middle class, upper middle class families, um, but what what also are the risks to lower income and working class families?
0: Scott, does the does the universal nature of the child allowance? Cancel out any of the work disincentives, meaning there is a a phase out at the very high end in many of these proposals. But whether Mm -hmm. you are at the say forty thousand level or ninety thousand level, that that number doesn't change. Does that cancel out some of the work disincentives?
2: I think you're right that there are there there's in theory a work disincentive at the very top, but that's very very high (laughs) up the income ladder. I think you can you know you can be a married couple making four hundred thousand dollars. Uh, a year, and then and then it starts to phase out. Um, I'm less worried about those folks than I am about the folks lower down. So if you're if you're a single mother uh, or a single father making, you know, twenty five thousand dollars, and and you switch from having this phase in to just everybody getting the same amount, that has some really strong work disincentives built in, and and because you know most folks with with a family income that low uh, are not. Uh, two-parent families. Um, It also will make it relatively easier um, to get by as a single parent, and so it would be expected to encourage more single parenthood as well. At the time that I started writing about this, which was at the very beginning of 2021, I was mostly pushing back on uh, a lot of claims that this wouldn't matter at all, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was kind of more of a a defensive pushback on my part to, to critique some of these other studies But what happened later in 2021 is that a report came out by my colleague, Kevin Corinth here at AEI uh, and uh, Bruce Meyer, um, who also has an AEI affiliation. He's at the University of Chicago. And they did a very rigorous analysis um, that that basically said, if you take what all of the academic literature says um, happens because we have a phase in um, in this other tax program, the earned income tax credit, that tax credit has been studied a lot, um, and they said, you know, basically the, the research shows that that work incentive increases work, and if you take that work incentive away from the child tax credit, it will have the exact same effect in the opposite direction. And so they applied, you know, the lessons from that earlier research and tried to figure out how many people will stop working, uh, will move from working to, to not working at all. Um, if you switch to a child allowance and and their estimate was that something like a million and a half uh, families would move from, you know, either two worker families to no worker families or from one worker families to no worker families. And it was overwhelmingly the second. Um, so it would be single parents that mm-hmm. move from working to not working. And, and that's a big deal. That's 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 big enough to reverse a lot of the progress we made since um, the welfare reforms of the mid 1990s. And so yeah, a lot of us kind of um, pointed to that and said, let's slow down here. Um, there are other ways to reduce poverty. There are other ways to, to maybe uh, encourage people to allow people to have more kids um, or to have one worker families. But you, re- it's a, it's a, going to be a big mistake if you don't take into account this, this work disincentive.
0: Scott Winship is with us, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, you're a data guy, Scott. Did we have any information at all useful from the experiment uh, during COVID times of actually providing these cash payments toward uh, parents?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Unfortunately, I think the answer is, you know, the evidence from 2021 doesn't really give us a lot of direction moving forward. Um, And the reason for that is that the 2021 expansion um, so your listeners probably know that it was expanded. Uh, the child tax credit was temporarily made into a child allowance uh, by uh, the Biden administration in 2021. But but that was always set to expire at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're somebody who is trying to decide, do I stop working or not? Do I uh, get divorced or not? You know, the, the prospect of this thing changing for a few months um, in the second half of 2021 is not going to be a you know a strong incentive to do much of anything differently. whereas if we had a permanent program that was in place and that would require essentially 60 votes in the Senate and the majority of the house and the president uh, to repeal it, you know something like that is much more set in stone and and people will will base their decisions on that rather than on this thing that that's probably going to go away in the short term. The other reason that um, that I think it, it doesn't give us very many lessons, is that most of the concerns that conservatives have about people not working uh, or or more uh, people deciding to form single-parent households, those are things that it will take some time before those changes occur. So, you know, we shouldn't expect to have seen much change in 2021 because of this temporary thing and it only being, you know, six months or so that they experienced this change. So th- th- there, there are studies that are being done. Um, there's, probably half a dozen that I've seen, but I, but I think even the best conducted studies from the 2021 expansion just really don't tell us much about what we would see with a permanent child allowance.
0: If the child allowance does allow families to be bigger, to have more children, is there any kind of argument that the, the need for population growth, the need to increase the birth rate in the United States is so great that mm-hmm. any kind of downside might be worth it?
2: Yeah, so I'm a little contrarian, I guess, um, uh, even, you know, compared to some of my friends in AEI who are sort of more on the uh, social conservative or pronatalist side. I think there are certainly costs to the fertility rate in the United States and in other rich countries declining. But, you know, I, I, I think the key question ought to be, does declining fertility reflect the preferences of American men and women or not? Um, and, and so if it were the case that Americans were having fewer kids, but they really wanted to have the same number of kids uh, over time. It's just it's no longer affordable for them to get their preferences. That would be a big problem uh, in my mind. If it's the case that people are having fewer kids because they're choosing to uh, to have other things, they're choosing to have bigger houses, to buy more stuff, to um, have more fulfilling careers, uh, you name it. Then, then to me, all of those preferences need to be balanced out against um, any of the costs uh, that would accrue to, say, dynamism or innovation or economic growth. And and I think when you put it that way, it's it's much less clear to me uh, how worried we should be about declining fertility. I think it's an area that calls for a lot more research. I I, I tried to do some research on this um, a couple of years ago, uh, and I, I used survey data to that actually followed uh, women from their teenage years into adulthood. And I essentially found that if you looked at how many kids women said they wanted to have uh, when they were 18, and then you fast forwarded and looked at how many kids they'd actually had in their mid thirties in, in both um, the millennial generation and sort of the late baby boomer generation, 30 something women had not had as many kids as they had said they wanted at age 18 uh, by the time they were in their mid thirties. Uh, however, the extent to which they, they missed um, hadn't increased over time. Um, and so it's, I don't think it's the case that it's gotten harder to have the number of kids that you want. There's an argument that can be made that, it, that the people have always had fewer kids than they want mm-hmm. um, and that we should remedy that. That's, that's a, a, a problem that's, that's worth considering, I think, but we do have to, balance it against these these other preferences.
0: You told us earlier in the conversation, Scott, that, that child poverty numbers largely are trending in, in, in the right direction. If we think they should be moving faster, if we think they should be getting better uh, more quickly, are there other ways to go about it rather than these direct child allowance payments to families?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think... I think there is. Um, I think in the long run we've got to focus on policies that uh, increase economic growth. Um, that's really the best poverty reduction program we've ever found is, is just if we could get the growth rates that we had you know in the mid 20th century that would that would do a lot towards reducing poverty. An- another uh, kind of longer term factor is this decline in marriage that we've had over time, um, the number of kids, that have grown up uh, with with married couples um, has dropped quite a bit uh, over fifty years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in nineteen seventy, for instance, you know something like ten percent of kids were born to a single uh, a single mother. Uh, today, that's more like forty percent. So that makes it difficult to reduce poverty if um, if if you're only growing up in a family where there's only going to be one worker um, at at most, um, and otherwise you're going to be dependent on on federal assistance. Uh, so, so I think we need to figure out through policy how to reverse the decline in marriage. And, and that isn't something that we know how to do right now. I've proposed a few things um, along the lines of changing the earned income tax credit that I mentioned earlier, which mm-hmm. is essentially a, a subsidy that low, low income um, workers get. You could make that more generous for married couples, for instance, um, in a way that would encourage more people to uh, delay having kids until they get married, um, that would encourage them to get or stay married. Um, so I think those are important. Otherwise, I think, you know, we need to build on the lessons of of the mid-1990s welfare reforms, um, which which reduced dramatically how many people were receiving cash welfare and increased the number of single parents who were working and reduced child poverty. So that, that feels like a recipe for success that, that we need to emulate. Um, most of our other safety net programs still retain the pretty strong work disincentives that, that the old cash welfare program had. So um, you're hearing a lot more talk uh, this year about work requirements for food stamps, um, which is a, the program called SNAP.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Some people are talking about work requirements for Medicaid. I, I would sort of go there last, I think, but public housing benefits um, certainly uh, there, there are pretty few work requirements there as well. So I, I think that's, that's a lesson that we, need, that we need to pursue, that if we impose work requirements and time limits on families, um, we give you know, a safe harbor to some who have the strongest challenges, who are going to be the least employable. But for most, we do have these expectations. We combine it with this earned income tax credit that uh, rewards work, and, and we try to focus on single parenthood as well. That's, that's the way forward, I think.
0: Scott Winship, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility at the American Enterprise Institute, more at AEI.org. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you, Scott. We thank both our guests on today's program. Patrick T. Brown, Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Find him on Twitter at Rights. And Scott Winship, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Opportunity and Social Media at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.